You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge Podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. And today is a story time with Sarah. And because we are celebrating the Reformation today, woo, yeah! Woo, yeah! Reformation. which is one of the best times of the year to be a Lutheran because, you know, everything is about Martin Luther and Katie Luther and somebody else that you will learn about today because today's story time is about a heroine of the Reformation. And I think her name came up during... Uh, last year's Reformation quiz is that is that where we first heard about Electress oh. Anna of Saxony? An unexpected pop quiz in the middle of this episode. Yeah, I'm not prepared, but um, yeah, we will definitely we can definitely uh, throw out a link to that that quiz so people can go back and listen to it. But yes, she was uh, she she made a brief cameo appearance in last year's <laughs> Ladies of the Reformation trivia challenge. And I'm pretty sure you stumped us on some question pertaining to her. So this is redemption because now you get to learn everything about her. Correct. Teach me. Before I dig in, I do have to give a huge shout out to Molly Lackey, who helped with my research on this because she knows literally everything there is to know about every person during Reformation times. Thank you. You rock. You're awesome. Super brilliant. So I get to tell you today about... Anna of Denmark, Electress of Saxony, also known as Mother Anna, which I will get to at the end of my notes. She was born in Hadeslev, which is in southern Denmark, on November 22nd, 1532, and died in Dresden on October 1st, 1585. She was 52 when she died, so she didn't live a super long life, which probably wasn't that out of the ordinary back Yeah, then. but if she was 52 when she died, she probably didn't die in childbirth. So there's a plus. That is also true. <laughs> yes, dying in childbirth was also a very common thing, which is yes. really sad. Anna was a Danish princess from the house of Oldenburg. And in her marriage to Augustus of Saxony of the house of Vettin, she became Electress of Saxony. And she knew a whole lot about plants and herbal remedies. Uh, she had a gigantic library. She loved medicine. She loved education and theology. She helped farming and horticulture in Saxony. And the reason that she's the subject of this podcast, however, is because she was hugely influential in the spread of Orthodox Lutheranism. Are you going to get to what electress means? Yes, I am. Okay, okay. That is my next paragraph. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> Can I just point out here, she would blend (laughs) right in with the Lutheran Ladies Lounge uh, Facebook group. I mean, the way you describe her, I'm like, oh, girl, I want to have coffee with you. Come on, and we'll talk (laughs) horticulture and theology. Uh Right? I mean, I'll get to this later, but she was like epitome of multi-potentialite back in the day. She knew about everything, and she knew everybody and she was just like super cool. So Okay, tell us more. I'll get there though. P.S. If you decide to research her more, which you totally should because she's a super cool woman, you're going to want to go by her birth and death dates because there are several Anna of Denmark's if you search for her or Anna of Saxony. Go by her birth and death dates so you Steve don't get confused. America. Anyway, okay. So the first question that I asked when I started researching her was, hmm, I wonder what an electress is okay. because I don't actually know what that means. <laughs> And it's going to make a whole lot more sense if we all know her actual role, right? 
So this is of the time of the Holy Roman Empire. You're going to get a mini history lesson here. This is the time of the Holy Roman Empire, which uh, shout out to my AP world history teacher in high school. He used to say it was not holy or Roman or an empire, but that was his joke. Uh, (laughs) This empire was in existence from the 9th century to the 19th century, which is really crazy to think about. The modern day Germany that we know was at the time of the Reformation, a collection of states ruled by dukes, princes, and bishops. It didn't become a united Germany until 1871 under Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. But this episode isn't about German history. That's just a little snippet. So you know, like the political climate we're in here. So the electors, which are also called prince electors, were the electoral college that elected the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire meaning they would select the monarch that the Pope would then crown because church and state were one thing. These guys were super powerful, really important people, uh, considered second only to a king or emperor. They held immense power and privileges that weren't shared with other princes in Europe. And they held this title in addition to their original titles. So these electors were in power beginning in the 13th century, although the result of elections changed in the mid-1500s. Frederick III, who was very influential in the Reformation, was elector of Saxony from 1463 to 1525, which is right before Anna of Denmark's husband was elector. Charles V, that should ring a bell, was elected Mm -hmm. in 1519 and was the last emperor to be crowned. After him, the rulers were titled Elected Emperor of the Romans. These electors had to be addressed as Serene Highness and then later Most Serene Highness, which was a higher title than other princes got. So these guys were like real important dudes. So it's like if each of the United States was its own country, but we all got together to elect an emperor, but not every state elected an emperor. There'd be like half a dozen state governors that were in charge of picking it. And so those people would not only be like governor of their little area, but also like super powerful among the whole conglomeration. That might actually yeah. work yeah. these days. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm <laughs> grasping the straws right now. That might work. Let's try it. So these, these guys were involved in all areas of governance as members of the imperial diet. This imperial diet voted in religious coalitions as well with the Archbishop of Mainz. Mainz came up in a couple podcasts ago. The Archbishop of Mainz was over the Catholic body and the Elector of Saxony over the Protestant body because Northern Germany became Lutheran and Southern Germany remained Catholic. So the Elector of Saxony had an even huger, even bigger role in in all of this uh, religion and politics and, and culture and all of these things that were all wrapped up together during Holy Roman Empire times. So the story of Anna of Saxony plays into all of this because she was married to the Elector of Saxony and therefore the Electress of Saxony. So she so herself is- didn't vote, but she was married to the guy who did. Right, which okay. means, you know... She had what is it the 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 man is the head but the woman is the neck isn't that a, a Luther thing? <laughs> you know I that. that was my big fat Greek wedding. Yeah, that's what, where I heard that? it. Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> he probably said that. Like that. <laughs> I thought that was. A, am I totally off on that? <laughs> I think you need some Windex, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, well, maybe it's a big fat Greek wedding thing, and I'm just 
totally off in where I get my quotes from. Um. <laughs> Probably the best title, like title you could ever like. It just sounds, it sounds strong. What so. Electress? Yeah. You know, she probably had a whole lot of influence, especially since she and her husband had a a very nice marriage. They It wasn't one of those marriages where like they were married, but they never actually talked to each other. Yeah. So she was the eldest child of Christian, Duke of Schleswig-Holstein, and his wife, Dorothea, Dorothea of Saxe-Lauenburg, which is in northern modern Germany, just south of Denmark. And he will be king at this point. He's not king yet when she was born. But a civil war occurred in 1534 to 1536 when Anna's grandfather, Frederick I of Denmark, died and there was a succession crisis. Big deal. The Danish Council of the Realm elected Anna's dad, Christian, as King Christian III in 1536. And his parents were crowned King and Queen of Denmark in 1537. So she was just a little little kid at that point when her parents became King and Queen. King Christian III actually brought Lutheranism to Denmark in 1537 after his dad had actually tried to reform the church but failed. Christian III actually knew Martin Luther and had become a Lutheran. So after he won the throne, he declared that Denmark would be a Lutheran country, Lutheran nation. This didn't bode well for the Roman Catholics, though. And at this time, uh, religious wars were real. Well, I guess they still are, but it was real bad. Uh, Roman Catholics who didn't fall in line were imprisoned or deposed, and the church property was confiscated by the government. Johannes Bugenhagen, a Lutheran reformer from Wittenberg, and actually Martin Luther's own pastor, came north to help set up the Lutheran Church of Denmark. And so because of this, Anna was raised in a very strict Orthodox Lutheran household. And I'm sure that had a huge impact on everything else that she did later in her life. She was educated in reading, writing, arithmetic, and religion by Tielemann von Husen, who had studied with Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. Even her education as a child was from somebody who worked with Martin Luther. So, you know, she was getting the the good theology from the time she was a little kid. She also learned medicine, probably under Cornelius von der Hansfort, who was a physician in her father's court. She learned German and Danish, reading and writing in German and Danish, but probably didn't know Greek or Latin. So she's not one of these royal people that knew like 15 languages. Uh, Her interests were in other things like theology and medicine and plants, too. Her love of books and knowledge began at a very early age. So fast forward a few years, she was betrothed to Augustus of Saxony of the Albertine branch of the House of Vettin, which is a super powerful house of ruling people, in March 1548 at the age of 16. So she got married pretty young. Yo. Also not super uncommon at this time. I know. Like, that's pretty normal then. Yeah. Yeah. Augustus was the younger brother and possible heir to Elector Moritz of Saxony, and there was some political stuff revolving around this succession as well, but that's a different historical podcast, and you can research that on your own. This was a political match as the elector wanted to have closer relations with the Lutheran factions, and Denmark wanted closer ties with German rulers. And these two houses were very influential houses in in ruling times. So this would have been a very good match for both of those houses. They were married in Torgau in October 1548, which is near Leipzig and Dresden. 
The Oldenburgs, Anna's family line, and the Wettens, Augustus's family line, were the most wealthy and powerful Lutheran dynasties in Europe by the mid-1500s. And religion was so closely tied up into politics, uh, so these families had a real significant influence in the consolidation of political power as well in Denmark and Saxony during this time. They lived for a while in Weissenfels, but when Augustus became elector in 1553 after his brother Moritz was killed in the battle at Sievershausen, which I believe was the, during the Schmalkaldic Wars, if I remember that right from what I read, which is another Lutheran historical thing that you should go research because there's a whole history about that too. Uh, they lived in Dresden after that time. So their, their home, castle, everything... Uh, was in Dresden. Anna was 21 when she became Electress. Can you imagine being 21 and having that kind of power? Do you know Back what in I the was day, doing it was a, at a little bit more. <laughs> I was, I was buying alcohol legally. Is what I was doing. <laughs> if I wanted to buy lottery tickets. Oh wait, no, that's 18. Never mind. I don't know the law. But anyway, <laughs> you, so I can't even imagine that. I cannot. Yeah, when I was 21, I was an intern, not an Electress. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kids matured a lot faster in medieval times. I'm I'm pretty sure. Probably I mean, stuff out of necessity, just, obviously. Stuff just happened a lot sooner in their lives, especially with when you when you grow up in this kind of uh, royal political house. I mean, you've got responsibility from an early age, more than likely. Anna and Augustus had a good marriage and 15 children. Only four of them lived to adulthood, though which is really oh, sad. Yeah. Nearly all of them died in childbirth or uh, within the first year after they were born. Elizabeth, Christian, and Dorothea, and Anna lived to adulthood. So is that three girls and one boy or is it three all? Girls, okay. Three girls and one boy. Yep. So okay. Christian succeeded his father as the elector oh, okay. of Saxony. <laughs> so tangent about her children because they have some interesting stories uh elizabeth and anna both died in prison and not for very good reasons either anna seemed to be the rebellious one she married a duke without her father's consent and her husband preferred hunting over her and so she started dabbling uh was called caught by him in adultery and at that time, if you were a woman and you were caught in adultery, that means you probably were going to be imprisoned and murdered or, and killed because that's just wow. how it went at that point, which is what happened to her. She was imprisoned, sentenced to be beheaded, but her husband had mercy on her and changed it to a life sentence in prison. It's kind. I'm guessing Yikes. that when you say that's what it was at that time, that particularly for the women. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, that especially is how it is. royal women. Yes, especially royal women. Keep those those bloodlines super pure. pure. And Make if you sure know for line. sure uh, okay. who, who, mm. your, who your fathers, the fathers mm. of your children were, that was a bad thing. So they took yeah. it pretty seriously. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. What happened to the other one? Why, so, why did she end up in prison? Elizabeth married a count who was a Calvinist one of the sons of Frederick III, and Elector Augustus was hoping to win him to the Lutheran side, but it didn't work, and the Catholics got super angry because they thought it was a power grab, and so they arrested Elizabeth and accused her of adultery and a murder plot, which may or may not have been true. Accused her of adultery and a murder plot and was sentenced, was sentenced to life in prison. She actually converted to Calvinism while in prison before she died, though, which is an interesting plot twist on that one. 
in oh. w- this is the kind of sad part. In both of these cases, their brother, Christian I, who succeeded his father into, into the electorship and therefore had immense power at this point, refused to help either one of them. So mm-hmm. thanks, bro. Right. Wow. I mean, he love you. Probably a lot of political reason and pressure from people to, you know, uh-huh. let it go. And women, at the, I mean, we've talked about this before, how women during this part of history were, you know, not always respected very well. So even royal women and maybe especially royal women who the odds were against them by the time they were put in prison, you know, for these things. So and Christian apparently believed the adultery and murder plot that Elizabeth was accused wow. of. There's that. Dorothea married uh, another Lutheran duke, so she was going down the right path, yeah. uh, but she died in childbirth oh. shortly after oh. the marriage. Super sad. Okay. So those are her kids. Christian I went on to be elector of Saxony from 1586 to 1591, married Sophie, daughter of John George, elector of Brandenburg, and had seven children. So well, I'm glad we had a great boys. life. <laughs> Really? So Anna has quite the family legacy, um, and these are long, long lines of, of royal houses in Germany. It's quite fascinating to read through all of the history and who these people were and the, the influence that they had over all of this stuff in history at this time. So those are her kids. I mentioned earlier, Anna was really into plants. She was quite the green thumb. She was really good at managing gardens and farms. And in 1578, her husband even entrusted all of his estates to her to manage, which seems like a pretty significant thing for an electress to have management over all of this land. She introduced new crops and livestock into Saxony and introduced horticulture or maintaining gardens. I totally had to look that up because I know nothing about plants. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's practiced in Denmark. (laughs) So like Holland tulip fields that you see pictures of and all of this stuff, all of the beautiful gardens that you Hmm. see from Denmark and Holland and um, all of those things. That's what she was really good at. Beautiful stuff. All of her work had a hugely beneficial effect on Saxony's economy, and Saxony became one of the most prosperous parts of Germany because of some of this. She was an expert on herbal medicine as well and considered the first female pharmacist in Europe, which is sweet. That is so cool. She had her own library and laboratory in her castle, which is now named Castle Annaberg. Nice. Super cool. Wait, is it named after her? Yeah. (laughs) Ha ha. Right. I mean, she was she was really influential. Like, even if you aren't Lutheran and you don't care about all the Lutheran history stuff, she was influential over yeah. politics and culture, like immensely, yeah. immensely influential. Okay. So, okay, her library. <laughs> I read an entire like fourteen page article. Thank you, Molly, about her library. It is really cool. This is the very condensed version of that article. Her library had five hundred titles. In 438 volumes and about 50 manuscripts, including medical manuscripts. So remember, this is what, just shortly, uh, a little over 100 years after the printing press was invented, and she has 500 books. That's really impressive. In addition to Elector Augustus's 2,334 volumes, of course he has more, their books were the core of the, of the Royal Saxon Library that was created later. Elector Augustus did establish a printing shop at the family castle in Dresden, but most of their family books were probably ordered from another printing facility um, based on faculty recommendations from the universities in Leipzig and Wittenberg. 
approximately two-thirds of Anna's library were books of Luther and the Reformers. That is a whole lot of books. And those were like fresh off of, fresh <laughs> fresh from the printer kind of books. Hot of, off the presses, literally. Of Luther and, Ref and the other Reformers, yeah. Which would, wouldn't be so cool to see her library. She had Bibles, church documents, hymnals, prayer books, histories, biographies, psalm books, and all of these, all of these uh, religious theological texts. Like that's how into theology she was. She also had an extensive medical section in this library, including 50 handwritten volumes, all but four of which were recipe books, and at least 34 printed books about medicine, which was only exceeded in number by the religious books. So medicine was way high up on her interests. And when I say recipe books, I mean like herbal medicine oh. recipes. Like you have this ailment. Well, if you take these uh, amounts of these different herbs and mix them together, it should make you feel better. That kind of recipe book because that More was the remedies than recipes. Yeah, that was that was the status of medicine in, uh -huh. in medieval times. And these recipes were popular medical books in the 1500s as they offered a bit of standard of care. So you could replicate these recipes of herbal medicines and and get kind of the same result every time instead of just guessing. You know, I was to give a shout out to another podcast. I was listening to the History of English podcast. Turns Ooh. out that the word recipe was used in regard to pharmace pharmaceutical formulations like this for a long time before it was used for cooking instructions. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Huh. So that is interesting. Given that, given that in you know medieval times and and presumably Renaissance and and following, women played a huge role in healthcare in their mm -hmm. family and on their estates that that was that was sort of considered women's work was you know those herbal remedies and so it doesn't surprise me that Anna would would take that as one of her interests and then just go crazy with it mm -hmm. yeah women were uh were expected to care for their family's medical issues so some of these were gifted from other people other families who had these beautiful, like illuminated recipe books for for herbal medicine that that would be gifted to her. One of these she actually wrote herself. It's a 28 page manuscript of gynecological recipes and advice that she wrote. So this is something that she actually gathered herself. She was super duper knowledgeable about all kinds of women's health issues Dude, um, and all kinds of kids. Yeah, right, exactly. She had a lot of uh, <laughs> personal experience of what works and what doesn't. She knew all kinds of stuff for pregnancy, for difficult childbirths, for caring postpartum, for caring for a young mother and her baby. She knew all of these things and she compiled it all into this book, which I would be really curious to read what kinds of things they did back then for the women's health stuff that we just talked about in our last podcast. <laughs> So she also had extensive contact with physicians across the Holy Roman Empire. Like I said, she like knew everybody. So she really acquired a, a really vast medical knowledge. Her books included all like across the board. It was like the WebMD of medieval times, except herbal style. So that's kind of like what her library was. <laughs> Uh, the other important part of her library was all of her books on agriculture, since that, that was a huge part of her life. She was well-versed in both agriculture and horticulture, having learned all of these farming techniques in Denmark before she was married, which means that she learned them when she was a teenager. 
because she got married at 16. So mm-hmm. all of this stuff that she learned when she was she was still pretty young and served her well through the rest of her life, which is really cool. And this this collection of manuscripts was part of what greatly helped advance agriculture in Saxony. Also, they didn't have the internet. So, right, having these libraries was a really big deal for them, especially during this time. And there there was so much world exploration going on and all of this beginning of uh, discovering knowledge, right? This is uh, what on the cusp of the uh, Age of Enlightenment, which would come about another hundred years-ish from this point. And they were also just a little over 100 years from the printing press. So at this, this is the point when, you know, prices of book printing and paper had come down to a point that these royal families were just grabbing up all of these books. Plus, you put on top of that the Reformation and all of Martin Luther's works. So if you're an influential Lutheran family, you're going to just be like racking up all these books in your library. These libraries also established the prestige of the rulers. It was a big deal to have a big library among ruling families. Like the bigger the library, the cooler you were and the more powerful you were because the more knowledge you had. Uh, you know, means... that, that may still be true as someone it... who has a big library and <laughs> intends to make it bigger. You are cooler if you have to. <laughs> Look at Yay! <laughs> It's, it's still kind of true today. Like, it's kind of a cool thing if you have but when a books big library. were all like the equivalent of a couple hundred dollars a piece, you know, it was it was more of an investment and more of a status symbol than perhaps it is today. Mm-hmm. Today, it's just cool. Lutheran reformers helped establish these massive libraries in many places across Europe, too, because they believed in accessible knowledge, especially accessible theology for the people to be able to read about God in their own language. This was a big, big deal. Anna even ordered copies of the catechism to teach her daughter Dorothea her letters using theological books for education. So the library was in addition to other collections in their castle, like coins and medals, silver plates, treasury, armory and saddlery, and seven rooms of a cabinet of curiosities, which sounds awesome. This one had tools, scientific instruments, thousands of other objects, and books, hundreds of books. This was a massive collection of knowledge just on the cusp of the Age of Enlightenment. So it was a big deal to to be gathering all of this knowledge and have the ability to to do that, have the ability and the, the money probably and the power to be able to gather all of this stuff in one place. Is this a place you can visit today? Uh, I mean, it still exists. I don't know if you can actually like visit. Worth looking into. Annaberg's castle. Yeah. Yeah. There are castles around Annaberg. You can go visit. One of the seven rooms of the cabinet of curiosities. Uh-huh. So I, I think this may be the part that came up in our Reformation quiz. I'd have to go back and look. Or listen, I guess. Anna wrote thousands of letters and kept all of these letters in an archive of correspondence with everyone. I'm pretty sure that was the factoid that we didn't okay. know at that point. <laughs> so she was a prolific writer. She wrote to everybody and she wrote to a lot of theologians too. So this was part of her influence in the spread of Lutheranism because she felt so strongly about Lutheranism and about defending the the proper distinction of law and gospel and, and the word of God and all of this. 
So these letters give really great depth into her daily life and influence in political, religious, and cultural things in Saxony and all over Europe as well. She was well-respected by other royals as well and was even asked to mediate in conflicts or marriage negotiations, like bringing people together for good marriages. Boss <laughs> lady. <laughs> right? Anna is also commonly known as a mother of the church. She did have some influence in the very visible new church buildings being built at this time for Lutheranism. St. Anne's Church in Dresden was built in her honor in 1578. And there was at least one other building and glass for a different building that happened under her influence. But these, these very visible parts of influence weren't really her style. That's fairly the norm for the influence of women at this time. They usually weren't the ones that were, you know, the, the big, big building and architecture kind of influential people. It was more of the, the behind the scenes talking with people and providing monetary patronage for people of influence. So her influence was more felt in the personal patronage that advanced the careers of theologians and also her role in shaping the confessional stance of the electorate of Saxony. During the rise of the crypto-Calvinists in Saxony in the 1570s, she helped make sure that they did not take over, which is a whole thing in Lutheran history. I'm going to give you the like 30-second elevator speech of this because it is a really significant part of our Lutheran history and probably one of the biggest parts that she was influential in. You'll read a lot about the crypto-Calvinists in our Lutheran confessions and the formula of Concord. If you read through that or listen to our podcasts on Concord Matters, there's a plug for a KFUO program. They do talk about the crypto-Calvinists fairly often because this was a really significant thing. So crypto-Calvinists were a segment of the Lutheran church that was accused of secretly subscribing to Calvinist doctrine of the Lord's Supper during the time after Martin Luther's death in 1547. And this was fairly centered in Saxony. So this was really Augustus's problem. <laughs> so Anna's husband, Elector Augustus, actually kind of fell into camp with the crypto-Calvinists <gasps> who were taking root in Saxony. And although he was raised Lutheran, he was swayed by these teachings there were two family factions in the House of Vetten, which is Augustus's family, royal family line. The Albertines, which was Augustus's family branch, and the Ernestines, which was the other branch. And there is kind of some tension between the two because it happened when, when the royal line kind of split the land that they were going to inherit. And land is a big deal. When you are a successor of something, you usually get a lot of land. When that land mm -hmm. gets split, it's a big deal. So these two family branches were also feuding over this theology, and Augustus was reluctant to completely break with the Calvinists for political reasons. Uh, he was afraid they were going to take his land, pretty much. So he was trying to play nice with the Calvinists, and he wanted them to kind of all come back to the table and all eventually be reunited, but that really wasn't going to happen ever. So that made it a little bit easier for him not to come down really hard on this right away. And the crypto-Calvinists wanted to convince Augustus that they were real Lutherans and weren't doing anything bad. But they were actually trying to bring these Calvinist teachings on the Lord's Supper and predestination to the University of Wittenberg, which is a problem, you know, pure doctrine and all. So Anna wouldn't have any of this. And like we said earlier, uh, there's not a whole lot of documented stuff on what she actually 
would have done because it wasn't really a, a woman's place to be you know, stepping into these things. But she spurred her husband, Augustus, to not take this and to put an end to these teachings. So this dispute came to a head in 1574 and Augustus ordered the crypto-Calvinists to be seized, tortured, and imprisoned. Whew. So it didn't no. last. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we don't do that kind of thing anymore. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, I, I love pure doctrine quite a lot, but I... Come on, Augustus. We don't need to torture for it. Right. It seems that, I mean, seizing people and torturing them and throwing them in prison seemed to be kind of the thing for anybody that was doing anything yeah. that you didn't agree with. So thankfully, we excessive we, these days. Anyway. We don't do that these days quite so much. We just shame them on social media. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. which is still super painful. But I mean. right. But it's hard. It's hard to look back and see these otherwise really admirable people and you read that that sentence and you think oh why couldn't we leave that out but you can't when you're mm -mm. dealing yeah. with the history of a life you deal with the whole life and you don't know you know whether there was regret or you know it, it's so hard to know the whole story but anyway mm -hmm. thanks for not glossing over that part even as problematic as it is because we gotta, we gotta look at it in the hairy eyeballs and uh, just mm -hmm. say, this is this happened. Well, and religion and politics were tied up as essentially almost as one thing at this point. For sure, and and I mean, in a lot of places in Europe, that's still the way it is. So there were there were people that were threatening Augustus personally and his political role, and it's it, I don't know if they were really threatening like death on his family or anything but they were threatening him to the point that it was a personal thing for him too but dealing with this theology at that point it was theology and politics so if there was a political mm -hmm. reason also why these people needed to be put away then that was going to be the reason even if it was also based in theology which is in our modern day lutheranism separation of church and state america that's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around what how all of these things yeah, are so closely dissidence is just not cool right okay <laughs> right sorry that was a debbie downer thing all right yeah well it's kind of it doesn't get better yet hold on uh carl no. von weber <laughs> all of these letters that came into light uh during this time and that was part of what ended up spurring on augustus to put down the crypto-Calvinists. When all of these letters came out, Carl von Weber brought up whether Anna had gone beyond her defined gender boundaries in influencing the religious stance and politics of Saxony, but eventually decided that she hadn't. <laughs> but I'll bet she had. And that's so awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's this, like, in her whole ruling life, there was this ongoing tension between her gender and gender roles in society and the church and the fact that she had status as a secular authority because she was an electress and therefore had power. But she was also a woman. So where is that line of how much can she actually be involved in because she's a woman and shouldn't really be involved in religion, but religion and politics are so closely intertwined anyway. Like this tension goes everywhere because she was such a an awesome woman uh -huh. <laughs> with all of this influence. So that's kind of an ongoing thing in her entire life. So her involvement in Saxon religious and political stances did help lead to the fall of the crypto Calvinists, which uh, was one of the things that led to the formula of Concord 
and the immense spread of Lutheranism after Martin Luther's death. Women at this time weren't always regarded as being very intelligent, which we've talked about before, but Anna seemed to break those walls with her immense knowledge of a variety of things, and especially theology. And at this time, when doctrine was really being hashed out and studying the Bible in, in native language was really being encouraged, and women were, uh, couldn't study to be priests, obviously, a woman had to be very intentionally knowledgeable about theology in order to really differentiate these false teachers like the crypto Calvinists and and the true doctrine. So she was she had to have been a very, very, very smart woman to be able to do all of these things and to have this influence and to be able to separate the the good apples from the bad apples. There was one particular Lutheran theologian, Nicholas Zellnecker, that was encouraged by Anna. Their letters span almost 20 years. So this was a lot of influence on a lot of trust in this relationship. He had a bit of a tumultuous life, getting jobs and then getting kicked out of jobs and people not liking him for his theology and all of these things. And rumors, apparently people like to spread rumors that, oh, he's teaching false theology. Like that happened all the time. And so he'd have to like appeal to Anna that he really wasn't a heretic because people got like burned at the stake for being heretics. Like, it was bad news if you were a convicted heretic. So he was in close contact with Anna for many years and reached out to her support for her support many times. He dedicated a lot of works to her and her children, whom he knew from tutoring in the electoral house. She often supported these theologians financially when they dedicated works to her or her children. Zelnecker wasn't the only one who did that. There were several other theologians who would dedicate works to her because of her influence, and she would end up supporting them financially, which was a huge boost to these men who may or may not have been very well off otherwise. She also turned to the court chaplains who would have been Lutheran for wisdom and for guidance, especially when her children were seemingly being led astray by Calvinists like Elizabeth was back in the day. She had strong relationships with the theologians who educated her before her marriage as well. And then at one point, one of the court chaplains died and Anna pledged protection for his widow and children, which would have been a huge deal for that family. And then when this widow was near death, she implored Anna to care for her children as well. And Anna agreed to protect and advocate for them until they could be on their own. So she cared immensely for these Lutheran theologians and chaplains and, and all of these people. But also she cared for their families as well and wanted their families to be cared for. So she had a big heart too on top of everything. She was also involved in appointing chaplains and theologians for other consorts or rulers helping to advance their careers and therefore provide for them. There are a lot of letters that show the correspondence between Anna and other consorts and rulers asking for recommendations for priests. They trusted Anna to know who was a, th a solid theologian, as well as all of the family ties and relationships of these men. Because she knew so many people and she knew all of these priests, she was able to recommend priests to other people across the Germanic states, which is really cool. She knew all about the theologians all over Saxony and the consorts in other Protestant territories cared who they were getting for priests, which tells you a lot about the state of these rulers and consorts and, and their high regard for Lutheran theology at this time. And it also shows, again, how closely tied religion and politics were when these rulers would recommend priests to different regions. So all in all... 
Anna of Saxony, I think we've all agreed, is a pretty incredible woman. The epitome of medieval multi-potentialite, interested and super knowledgeable in all kinds of stuff, brilliant in so many areas. And she used her influence and power to advance the Lutheran church. And she was a faithful wife and mother. She was quite the heroine of the Reformation. And that is Anna of Denmark, Electress of Saxony. The end. I loved it. It was good. I wish I was her. I keep thinking about all the people we'll meet after the resurrection. (laughs) Do you think she'll hang out with us? I hope so. I think she will too. I don't think she'll have a choice. Also true. We shouldn't give her a choice. Hey, Anna. Hey, hey, Anna. Hey. Anna, we're your biggest fans. We're going to chase her. You want to sit at our table, Anna? I don't know if you want I don't know you think you want to sit at our table today you think you want to I mean it's up to you um yeah we'll be over here if you want will there be lunch tables in heaven I why wouldn't there be be table it'll probably be more like you want to sit next to me (laughs) no she's pretty fantastic well, I'm I'm glad that at least on this portion, if I do another Reformation Ladies quiz, you guys will be good to go. Up to speed. I want to yeah. dig more into all of this history now, too, because the more that I – I've done two stories now about the Reformation this year, and so many of these, like, medieval Reformation era Lutheran people and all of this history, and oh, there's just – How likely is it? Like, did she and Argola, did they live at the same time? Could they have corresponded? I believe Argola von Grumbach was a little bit l- earlier. She was a little earlier. She lived 1490 to 1564. So they would have, their dates do overlap. Argola was in Bavaria, but it's possible they mm-hmm. would have known each other. But let's be honest. Electress Anna was probably moved in a little bit higher social circle. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Von Grumbach. She was, I mean, Argola was a noble woman, but Anna was an Electress. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's a small Lutheran world. It really is always a small <laughs> Lutheran world. I'm sure they had one degree of separation like back then, you know, too, like, like we do now. Lutheran ladies who are super enthusiastic about theology, that narrows your world a little further. And it sure so, does. You know, I can, I sort of like the idea of imagining that maybe they, they exchanged a couple of letters since they both like to write letters, right? Don't I they remember? Did. That would be fun. That would be a fun book. So maybe they, maybe they just exchanged a couple, maybe? And even if they didn't in real life, I think they could probably have done so in fan fiction. Somebody needs to write some fan fiction. Uh, Ladies of the Reformation fan fiction. Yes. It'd be like a superhero movie. Reformation cinematic universe. Yes. happening oh man there's so many so many things that could happen I'm call up joss weed and i'll be right back we're gonna need a few <laughs> more story time episodes though before we have our our roster completely um, yeah filled out yeah. so have to, have to dig out some more yep yeah 
Oh, well, on that note, we have our, we have our, our, our uh, idea for our women of the Reformation fan fiction universe. So uh, we're going to have to get started on that one. That's right. That would be a, oh man, I can see CPH now rolling that one out. <laughs> yeah. That would be amazing. Lady authors out there, maybe you want to look into this. Maybe. Hmm. I'm I'm putting pen to paper once we're done here. I don't know about anyone else. <laughs> yes. All right, Lutheran ladies out there in Lutheran ladies lounge land. Hopefully you've enjoyed this uh, story time learning about Electress Anna. And maybe you've been inspired to dig into your theology books and the formula of Concord and learn more about our Lutheran Reformation history because there is so much there way more than than the like dates and times and stuff of Martin Luther that we always learn every year. There's so many more people and historical details and things to dig into. So maybe this gave you a little inspiration to do that. Happy Reformation! Uh, yeah! You can find all of these podcasts at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge or on your favorite podcasting app. And if you're not in our Facebook group yet, we'd love to continue this conversation about awesome women of the Reformation. So find us on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies Lounge group. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Electress Brie of Saxophones. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm your biggest fan. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Join our community on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies Lounge. There we go. Did they all get capes? I've wanted a reason to get a cape for a long time. You know what? They Graphic all wore novel. capes anyway, just as part of their right. regular outfits. Really? I know. The Reformation graphic novel. With capes. And fiction. Yes. Oh, yeah. Also, don't wait. What are you waiting for? Just get a cape and wear it. I'm going to. Yeah. yeah. I love the capes. The world doesn't stop for that. Just go no. do it. And you're going to look awesome. Yes. No questions asked. Ha <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>